I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And this week, I welcome a man who played live with the Style Council and live and on record with Paul Weller solo, the saxophonist and flute player, Jacko Peak. We chat about those early days of the Weller solo career, the Paul Weller movement, Wildwood, and hear about lots of touch points since then. And we hear about his fantastic return to the band last summer. So let's get into it. Jacko Peak, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome, Dan. It's lovely to see and hear you and uh, put a face to the voice. I've been following the podcast, actually. Oh, bless it. To great amusement and also a huge amount of education of filling in the gaps of my memory. <laughs> and uh, actually how long, you know, how quickly life goes by and how much it gets crammed into all of these little facets of things you forgot and uh, things that you've kind of re- half remembered and I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and I decided on the, on the phrase memory modeling was actually what it was all about. Cause you're kind of fitting things into where you think they were and how you thought they happened. And then with a little bit of research, you realize you're completely wrong. And, uh, <laughs> and actually it went like this, you know, you reconstruct your memories. You know, but anyway, I love the idea that we're filling in some of those gaps for you. I'm really excited about this because you were there. When I discovered Paul Weller, you were part of that mix with Aha, Oh Yeah, and the B-side, which I love as well, Arrival Time. But we'll talk about all this stuff in a second. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's kick off. When was it that you first discovered the music of Paul Weller? I think I was 17, 18, and I was well aware of the jam. It was um, music that was fresh and vibrant to me, and it was particularly sparked one day. We were living in a squat in uh, Kensington. It was back in the day when, you know, you could squatters had rights and cheap housing was where it was at. And we were all crammed into this studio flat in the back of Kensington, which we'd managed to get into by completely legal means. And we'd staked our claim as residents of this place, which was hilarious because it was quite a 
posh uh, environment, but we were quite well behaved. So we managed to stay there for about six months. But my mate, Willow Tool, came in one day with sound effects and a big beaming grin on his face. And we stuck it on the, on the player. And uh, when I heard start, I was just like absolutely blown away. I mean, you know, I think start is a kind of a, quite a, a top jam track anyway, but the way that the three of those guys, Bruce, Rick and Paul, the way they combined as musicians and, uh, knocked out this huge sound and really it was I just thought it was the most vital thing I'd I'd heard and it was such a sort of commentary of the way I was feeling at the time and that just completely blew me away and from that moment on I was a massive Weller fan I mean I was a big jam fan it was kind of counter to some of the music I grew up with and listened to and and it meant for that reason probably it just kind of really rocked my boat and uh, that was the thing it was start out of sound effects and, uh, you know, and just seeing the artwork of the album and the, the vibe of it and hearing those guys play. And uh, I love the jam. I, I thought it was just so looking vital. A lot of people have talked, I can't remember who it was, somebody mentioned on this podcast and, and called Paul like a, a musical chameleon, constantly kind of changing. And, and I think that's just a fascination from him of wanting to drive forward from what I can understand from everybody talking on this podcast. Yeah, he's always done that. Yeah, but the Style Council was very much that, wasn't it? It was constantly changing. How did you feel about the Style Council? Growing up, me and my mates, we got into a lot of American funk, soul and jazz fusion. We thought ourselves of ourselves as quite aficionados and what was really what was really well played. We were into Herbie Hancock, Headhunters, because I'd just started playing saxophone when I was 17 and uh, quite late to it, really. And uh, I love Grover Washington and Wayne Shorter, and we love Weather Report and Joseph Zawinul and all these kind of like uh, the fusion jazz kind of stuff. And so when the Style Council came along and they were kind of professing to be soul players and stuff, not realising what the Style Council were really about, which was a complete melting pot of loads of things. I wasn't that fussed, really, to be honest, uh, at the beginning of the Style Council. And also, I was slightly peeved that the jam had finished, you know, (laughs) as as a lot of people were, you know. Yeah, of course. More more than slightly, more than slightly (laughs) pissed off, actually, because it wasn't until later with the Style Council that I actually realised what they were doing. And then very much later, looking back on the Style Council and realising that it was it was such a mix of style and pushing boundaries in the way they looked and what they were thinking and that you know i sort of forgave that that process quite happily after a bit you know and uh, and there's some tracks that the style council have done which just just have really stuck with me over the years and uh, so yeah i wasn't a fan initially and but then they grew on me slowly once i realized that they were actually a bit tongue in cheek and would were able to sort of take the Mick out of themselves a little bit. And some of the videos they came up with were so hilarious. They're really artistically out there. I realized it was a completely, well, it was a different thing than I had preconceived them to be. And then once I'd got over that, I got over myself. Then uh, I was quite ready and happy to accept them as a, as a musical and an artistic kind of entity. You mentioned picking up the sax and starting to get into the sax. Am I right in thinking you had no lessons at all? This is all just you teaching yourself and just practice, practice, practice. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in a musical family. My mum was a singer, born in Aberdeen. She uh, was instrumental in uh, my understanding of music. I mean, my sister's a a professional viola player. I, I used to play violin and viola in school orchestras. I played all the recorders 
I played oboe in school orchestras and I was pushed along by my mum. I've got a brother as well who played cello, but he was completely tone deaf. He used to use sellotape to mark the spaces on the cello where he had to put his fingers because he couldn't hear whether he was out of tune or not. Much the hilarity of me and my sister who really, if something was out of tune, it made the hair on the back, it made it sort of cringe, you know, so we were kind of like totally musical. And uh, what happened was during that whole process of being sort of classical music, playing other people's music, being in orchestras, being in the orchestra was like a a great discipline. Playing other people's music was another thing, i.e., you know, Bach, Handel, Beethoven, Mozart, whatever it was, do you know what I mean? I remember taking my viola as I played then, I was about 16 or something to a jam my mates were playing bass drums and guitar and I took my viola along and I had this kind of weird little British telecom pickup that I with a little suction cap that I stuck to the side of the viola and plugged it in an amp and it made loads of feedback and sounded really quite frightful even I mean violin played badly can sound frightful anyway but I kind of like was a half decent player and then I was jamming along with my mates and had no vocabulary I had no idea how to improvise because I'd always read music you know and uh, so it just made me think this is ridiculous you know and I just I need to I need to do something so because I'd played oboe and recorders and stuff I thought I'll just play saxophone so I got bought myself a saxophone and I never read another dot of music from then on uh well i have actually in more recent years but there was a whole time where i just completely didn't read music all i did was put on records and play along and learn how to improvise and i did it all off my own back yeah i was but i did have a musical education quite a disciplined one you know so that really helped me allow allowed me to realize what it took to get over the hump of learning a new instrument but i did it from the point of view of just hearing with my ears the sounds I wanted to hear, learned, learned the instrument. I used to play along to a lot of guitar music like JJ Kale, um, Little Feet, which not not sort of saxophone music, not jazz. It was kind of like Americana sort of blues, blues music, a lot of blues music I used to play along to because uh, blues is so far removed from classical music. I just immersed myself in the blues, really. And that's been a, that's the kind of player I am. I've always been is just a blues player and a feel player. And it's all comes from listening as opposed to getting into the kind of theory of it as a jazz musician mind. Although I do, you know, I do have some jazz influences, but the major thing with playing saxophone was just um, finding my own sound within what I what I felt, and that was uh, without reading music. That was just using my ear and finding patterns on the saxophone that would work for a particular thing. So that's yeah. So and I was I was self taught, totally self taught until later in my early twenties, uh, mid twenties, when I actually managed to get into. Uh, a music school. Uh, I studied jazz for a year. That was later on. The thing that's really interesting, and we'll talk about like why, you know, why Paul brings you into the band and at what points and what he needs from you, because I'd love to understand that from your point of view. But mm. it feels to me as a, as a listener and somebody who's seen you live, you bring something different to that instrument. And I don't know if you can put a finger on what it is, but I know that there's, there's a story I read about you being in a rock band is it no dice was that the rock band? yeah, yeah. blimey yeah. you heard about that jeez yeah, yeah i heard about this it's a bit like steve white on the drums where i think it's a, the whitey plays the drums in a very different way the power and energy that comes through from him i mean it's just i think he's like an athlete in terms of you know, absolutely how it feels amazing like with, oh amazing yeah but it feels like that yeah. with the saxophone for you you're like it's such a powerful sound that you're kind of putting everything you have into that instrument did that come from that that time of when you're in the rock band and you're competing for voice almost yeah i mean no dice were a middle 
middle of the road rock band and they they used to be signed to EMI and and when when the music business had trillions of pounds to throw at new acts and it was all very kind of like there was tons of money in the music business and um I was like 20 and 19 or 20 and these guys were like in their early 30s the reason I ended up with them was because I used to rehearse with Crispin Taylor who is a long-time musical compatriot of mine. They were in a punk band called The Outpatients, and we used to rehearse in Golders Green. And uh, it was owned by the manager of No Dice, and he heard me play saxophone, and he, he, he said, oh, you, what a great sound. You've got to come and play with No Dice. And I, we used to do gigs at the Marquee and the Greyhound on the Fulham Palace Road. Diesel was the guitar player, big old rock sound. And then it was Frankie Hepburn from Scotland, who was the rhythm guitar player. And they were just an out and out to the middle of the road rock band. And I had to compete with the guitars. So I was just, I gave it everything I got every time I played. There was, there was a friend of mine. He came to the gig at the Marquee. He was an Australian rock musician, bass player, and he took one look at me on the stage and uh, in the sound check, and he said, Jack, mate, what are you doing, man? You look like a little baby giraffe there, you know? And what he did was he, he got up on the stage and he put two bits of gaffer tape down on the stage, one for my left foot and one for my right foot, and they were about four foot apart. So I had to stand like... With like that, with my legs really wide apart, and which made me put my saxophone out to sort of balance myself. He said, "That's the way you got to stand, mate, if you want to compete with these fuckers." So um, that was it, you know. And he, he he gave me a bit of stage training and said, "Look, you know, no one wants to see a shy little boy on stage. What, what are you doing? You give it all you've got, you know." <laughs> and uh, that helped the projection. That helped my whole mentality with kind of like what people want. People want to be blown away, you know. So that's what I was trying to do, you know. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so it was a, a very sort of a big sound I was trying to make, put a lot of air down the saxophone in, in a quite a rock style, blues style. Competing with the loud guitars really helps with that projection. Yeah, well, you can definitely see that. And the and let's talk about um, Crispin because, and, and Ernie actually as well. So Ernie, yeah. Ernie, and there's links to Weller there as well, because I know they've both yeah. played with him and worked with him. But this was the band that then you created called Push. And I'm yeah. guessing this is where Paul discovers you and... and finds you is that how you first connected with him yeah so when we actually met paul we were supporting curtis mayfield as push in 88 or 80 yeah, i think it was 88 someone could yeah 88 possibly at the forum in kentish town forum 02 or it used to be called a town and country then it went back to the forum then the name sort of swapped between the two this was an, a major gig for push you know we were like just loving the whole thing what we were doing everything we, we were totally into the rare groove sounds out of the states all the old unheard of funk records and we were writing stuff and playing covers of a lot of a lot of these things and we got a gig supporting Curtis Mayfield which was just unbelievable and it was just a really brilliant night and we did it we did a good show as a support and Paul Weller and Dr Robert had come to see Curtis Mayfield because they they absolutely adored Curtis Mayfield he was the you know he was the godfather of soul as far as they were concerned so we done the gig we watched Curtis Mayfield 
absolutely amazing. We're, we're all backstage afterwards. And then Paul and Dr. Robert burst into our little changing room full of lads all smoking and drinking. Go, Way! You know, it's all brilliant. What a great gig. And then Paul, Paul and Dr. Robert come in and Paul says, that was just amazing. You know, and he, you know, he's, he's so generous, Paul, with his sort of like his love of music and include inclusive kind of uh, attitude he's got to um, all things musical. And uh, so he said to us, well, do you want to come to Solid Bond and uh, record? And we were like, yeah, sure we do, you know. So he, he wrote this song called Waiting on a Connection, which he thought would suit us, you know. So we went to Solid Bond for about three or four days. We were in there and uh, we recorded some of our own stuff. I think we did a cover of Donny Hathaway. Uh, love, love, love. We did, and we did waiting on a connection, which was the kind of real reason to be there. And um, but it was just great. And I got to meet Mick Tolbert, was hanging around and stuff, and he played a bit of Hammond on it. It was just amazing being in that environment and, and being in Solid Bond in Hyde Park. Suddenly being thrown into this um, this amazing kind of creative space and that's and yeah we got getting to know Paul through that and seeing his energy and his enthusiasm for what we were doing we, it was just amazing you know after that push thing with that we went to Solid Bond with I got a call from Paul I was living in, in Clapham in a short life housing place down there and uh, I got a call one day on the other end of the phone was Paul saying do you want to come to Japan with the Star Council I was like yeah, yes you know <laughs> straight away let me think about that for there a there is only, yeah. only one answer <laughs> and um, yeah and I didn't realise what what a sort of difficult period it was for the Star Council and stuff. And uh, I don't think even Steve White was doing that tour. I think he was doing his jazz renegades thing or whatever. He was doing his jazz thing. We had Richie Stevens on drums and a load of different people, a lot of different singers come up. Omar did it. Dr. Robert was playing bass on it for a bit. And then that finished that, you know, we did that gig at the, uh, we did the tour of Japan, which was great and um, quite, quite big, huge crowds and stuff. And then we did the Albert Hall. Uh, it was a massive mixture of music and a sort of like, it, you could see that Paul was experimenting with ideas that he'd later, he'd later use and musical directions. And it was a big melting pot and lots of different artists getting up there on that gig as well. And then that was the end of the Star Council. Then I carried on working with Paul all the way through the Paul Weller movement. And that was a really interesting time because it was just this sort of, I mean, I call it, I call it the sort of dark years really where Paul was really struggling to find and wonder whether he should actually, what he was doing. So it was a big kind of like moment for Paul that, Kind of like I kind of understand much more in later years, but uh, um, Steve White was the only constant in there, and uh, I learned a lot from Steve about the history of the Star Council, where Paul was at, and what he was going through at that moment. So I was able to sort of see it in a way. And we did some gigs where there were there weren't many people there. We did sort of tours in Italy and stuff, and uh, gigs that you know. He, he, so he was finding his way again, and uh, he really he was really struggling, you know. But because he was he's Paul, he just pushed his way forward relentlessly. Man of steel, he really is. He's just got this kind of tenacious grip on life, and uh, you know his creative output. And uh, he kind of I think he had moments where he thought. 
that was it. He's not going to carry on anymore. But he pushed his way through. He got he got himself over the hump. You yeah, see so the Paul Weller movement. I always remember it as being a bit a bit like a youth club. You know, we had Max Beasley on vibes <laughs> and percussion. He was eighteen. He was like a bundle of. And Max, I don't know if you've ever met him, but he's just. I haven't. No, I'd love to get him on the podcast, but he's obviously a yeah. Hollywood star right now. <laughs> well, yeah, he's an extraordinary character. He's uh, so full of energy, and he's just. It was madness. It, it, we were kids, you know, and it, it was just like Kenny Wheeler, the tour manager, just had his hands full with us. <laughs> Like, really did. It was like, got so many stories about the, the chaos that, that was going on at the time. But all the way through that, Paul was finding his feet again. And we were just like bundled of young energy and just facilitating any, any little whim that Paul had musically he wanted to do. And it really did crossed a whole load of different sort of styles, playing straight ahead jazz sometimes and uh, then quite hard edge rock in others, you know, big musical kind of like palette, if you like. And this all allowed Paul to really find his feet and a springboard, if you like, for his solo career. I mean, really funky sound as well at times with, um, yeah. you can tell there were the influences from like the acid jazz movement and things coming yeah. through as well. But it's really interesting that, so that first iteration, the Paul Weller movement, November, December, 1990, when he's back. And like I say, the first time that he's not had a recording contract since 1977, but <clears> Paul <throat> Francis has been on the podcast. So he was on bass. Yeah. Uh, Max, you mentioned, um, you on sax and flute. And then people that probably we haven't heard much of since in the Paul Weller movements, but Joe Beck. Damon Brown, Chris yeah. Lawrence, Paolo Hewitt, yeah. who was his best mate at the time, would kind of come around and DJ in that, wouldn't they? Paolo would always DJ at the beginning, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we'd quite often, you know, have uh, What Does It Take, that track, um, God, what's his name? Junior Walker, you know, which I loved. I loved that that track. That was very similar to my style of saxophone playing. Paolo would play that as a sort of theme at the beginning, yeah. So he'd DJ at the beginning of the... Yeah. Of the <laughs> and then so, Steve yeah. White, obviously the nucleus, but this was really early days, but we were already seeing some great songs like Round and Round and Cosmos, which take yeah. part of that, that first album. But I've heard Paul talking about it was kind of when the, the the track Into Tomorrow falls out of the sky and lands on his lap, that he felt, actually, I'm onto something here. I mean, that is an amazing tune, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it is amazing, yeah. He felt inspired again he felt a direction returning to he felt uh, a reason to be doing it again definitely you know it's got an interesting guitar intro where you think the one of the bar is where he starts playing but it's not so it's, it's kind of and then when steve white comes in he comes in on the one and it's kind of like sets you off in you're off kelter already with that track and then into the mists of time and space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, who can forget? And then I have to yeah. say, so it was Aha Oh Yeah was the song that I discovered Paul Weller from. And I've said this before on the podcast, but it was, you know, I heard it on the radio. I thought, Here's, this is amazing guy, Paul Weller. I'm recommending to friends. And it's only a mm. little later that I dig in and realise, you know, here's the style counts on the jam and this amazing back catalogue. And I was saying yeah. to somebody the other day, how, how cool would that be that if you discovered Fat Pop right now, like that was a new yeah. thing for you. You're listening to, you're watching Jaws Holland, you know, oh, there's this guy, Paul yeah. Weller, I quite like him. And suddenly you've got this like 40 plus years of back catalogue. Yeah. It's incredible. So it was an amazing experience for me, but that song was so important. But around that time, Paul then kind of disbands that movement. He disbands that lineup. And the nucleus is really, it's just you, Steve Wyatt and Paul Weller. And then lots of guests like Dr. Roberts back, Marco Nelson from The Young Disciples, yes. Camille yeah. Hines, a really different sound again. Yeah. So the first Paul Weller album was, uh, was basically Paul... There you go. Uh, on his own. <laughs> there, there it yeah, is. There we are. Look at yeah. that. That's such a cool cover, it. isn't it? The cover of that first yeah, LP. It's so brilliant. Cool. So cool. Yeah. We recorded a lot of it at this place in East Grinstead in Surrey called Comfort's Place. And it was a residential studio. And Paul 
got me and Steve just to be there with him. And it was a just ple- such a pleasure to, first of all, be asked, but also to just to hang out with Paul. And we were kind of like, Steve and I were like his mates, you know, we were just like hanging out, moral support, you know, just to hang and have a laugh, be involved in every process. A lot of my input was just going, oh, yeah, that sounds great, Paul. <laughs> What's for dinner? <laughs> but we, we did this thing where it started at 10 in the morning and finished at 2 at night. And it slowly got around to the point where we were finishing later and later and getting up later and later. We never quite managed to go around the 24-hour clock, but it was just a real lovely vibe. Max Hayes was engineering and Brendan Lynch was producing it. So it was a real small core, but then we had people come in. Dr. Robert came in quite a bit, played a bit of bass on a couple of things, I think. And uh, yeah, so we did the bulk of it there, but we also did things like Amongst the Butterflies at Black Barn, which Paul obviously now owns. Then that was a very small residential studio in Ripley and um, near his hometown and stuff. And uh, so we did a few, a couple of tracks there at Black Barn and a few things at uh, Solid Bond, I think we did New Thing, I think might have been at Solid Bond. Actually, New Thing was before. And New Thing is yeah. on the Japanese version of the album. So, so, so it was a Japanese yeah. record label that funded this. Pony Canyon, yeah. yeah. So without which, yeah. but yeah, on their, on their version of that album, we get New Thing. On, on our version, it's not on there, is it? <laughs> no, that was, that was a sort of like demo we had. I mean, New Thing says it all really. That's, it was a, Paul's whole vision was like, it's, it's a new thing. He felt energized again. He felt, in control he felt like he wanted to do it it was just great you know and he said to me so this is yeah it was after the Paul Weller movement where we were just sort of transferred one day in Solid Bond he said oh Jack look I really need a flute player I need someone I need a saxophone player who can play flute as well I'm gonna have to look for somebody else and I was like what you I said I play flute and he went, do you? And I went, yeah <laughs> do now and I, was, <laughs> well, I was like I, I don't know why I said that because oh, did you I'm not? not. <laughs> well, I had a flute. I had this like really shitty old student model flute, which didn't work at all. Every time I picked it up, it didn't work. So I always put it down again. He went, oh, great. Good problem solved then, Jack. You know, I've got this track called New Thing and uh, I'm going to be recording it in 10 days here. Just come down in 10 days and uh, bring your flute and off we go. And I was like, Okay, mate. Oh, 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 yeah. And I went home and I got the flute out of the case and it still didn't work, obviously. I thought, what am I going to do? What have I said? You know, and um, so I went straight down to All Flutes Plus in Waterloo and I said, you've got to fix, I don't care what, it, you've got to fix this flute for me. And he went, it's, it's not worth fixing. It's no good. It's like an old chitty old flute. And um, he fixed it out for me, made, fixed a couple of leaks. And for 10 days, I practiced flute at home just like sweating like really bad it was just like what have I done back at Solid Bond 10 days later Pete Wilson is producing it you know he he did quite a lot of jam stuff I was quaking in my boots I was like then you know the new thing comes on the headphones and I'm playing along and god it was like it was death by (laughs) death by misadventure it was terrible and there was a runner at the studio and I said look oh my lips have all seized up you've got to go and get me some lip salve so I sent him off down Edgware Road and uh, he came back with some lip salve and I I was like trying to get my flute playing going which you know was just crap and uh, but the thing was Pete Wilson was quite patient and he said yeah it sounds all right Jack you know can you just make it sound a bit more flash 
And I was like, oh, God, no. I was thinking to myself, you, you, why don't you ask a flute player? Do you know what I mean? But I got away with it. And um, I think a bit of flute still remains. About a f- three or four bars actually got used on the actual track. And um, and luckily, Paul wasn't at that session. And, uh, th- and he heard it and went, oh, it sounds, it sounds all right, Tack. And I think Paul knew all along that I was just completely... Bluffing it. I think he knew all along. I haven't actually talked to Paul about that since, but, um, and anyway, and then it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I love playing flute. I mean, flute is actually my main instrument now, really. I mean, emotionally, I'll get connect to it much more than, than other things. You know, saxophone's always been there, but I've just, you know, I love playing flute and it was, he just forced me, that situation forced me into a keeping my gig. You know, and uh, gainfully employed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you talk about emotional connections. I have to say, there's a song that comes very soon after, which has you on flute, uh, which is a lovely segue. Sunflower. What a, I mean, my God, what, yeah. a, what a song. This is the opening for Wildwoods. This came out before the album Wildwood, and that was the first single we got. And I was just like, I just remember getting that. I was in, I worked for the BBC doing work experience at the time, and I got that as a little promo CD. Yeah. It came in one day, and I remember driving my crappy Boxelastra estate on the way home. I just put that in and just played it endlessly back to back to back oh my god what a track that is such an amazing tune isn't it but you're doing the flute on that aren't you the, yeah the beginning of sunflower yeah yeah that whole process that well it being wildwood you know the album wildwood that whole process the change of attitude in how to record from in the initial paul weller album to wildwood was massive the paul weller album was quite studied and uh, thought about whereas wildwood was one take a lot of the stuff was all one take. It was all really vibey and there was a huge, so much more confidence in the whole outlook during Wildwood and it allowed it to be more of a performance-based kind of album. And so all of the stuff I did on Wildwood was all one take, as was I think most of Steve White's stuff was. And, you know, whereas um, the Paul Weller album was a bit more thought about and a bit more constructed, you know. So, I mean, I heard that instantly, that thing, and I just put it down and it was like yeah next you know and then did things like holy man where i did uh stacked up baritone tenor alto soprano to make a section and um brendan lynch was quite funny then because he said you know i was like forever trying to perfect things so i laid that down and i just bunged it down in like 10 minutes and i went does that sound all right and he said yeah that's it that's brilliant jack fantastic and i said so now can I do it properly? You know, <laughs> you like the idea. Can I actually play it properly? And he went, well, you've just done that. It sounds brilliant. You know, and that was, that was the whole thing. So I was like, oh God, you're actually going to let that go. But now I listen to it. I think, yeah, he was totally right because quite often it's been the way. In fact, Paul knows me really well in that sense. He'll always throw me in the deep end. He won't let me hear a track. He'll just put it up and he put me in the studio, get my saxophone on, headphones on. This is something just play along to it jack you know let's have what you've got first time you know so he he knows that if i'm given too much time i'll start thinking about it i'll go into my little kind of like you know i must be technically better uh, rather than just having a performance off the cuff kind of thing which is what paul loves he loves the kind of experimental kind of explosive kind of like 
just energy kind of side of things. They're not thought about performances is where and, and working quickly as well. Then by the sounds of things, and which you feel is very much you know. And I don't know if it's always been the case. I get the sense with heliocentric and illumination that that was much more of a laborious process. From what I've heard of them talking, but yeah, yeah, the albums recently it's like bang, 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 bang. We're just we're getting there and we're doing it in, again back to one take or very quick working, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So recently, because of lockdown. It's difficult to, to judge that. I mean, in his recent, well, with On Sunset and Fat Pop, you know, well, especially Fat Pop was done, a lot of that was remote where Ben Godelio would put down his drums at home and send them across and stuff. So that was quite a fragmented thing. But Paul is on, he's in a total purple patch now. He knows exactly, he hears it all. He, he knows exactly what he wants. Uh, he knows how to get what he wants. I mean, it's one thing knowing what you want, but it's another thing knowing how to get it. But he knows exactly what he's doing, you know, and he's just, he's on a complete roll, you know, with that. I mean, after Wildwoods, I kind of went off and did my own things. I was living in San Francisco by that stage, and I got involved in a lot of uh, music over there, playing up and down the West Coast. I didn't see Paul for ages, you know, and he went in, off and then the Stanley Road happened and I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing, you know. But I was living in the States and uh, coming backwards and forwards occasionally to do things like the Tolbert White album and stuff. I was still in connection with various people. and it, But it wasn't until the mid-2005, 2006, he'd done Studio 150, which I just thought was amazing, you know. And that was a, firstly because it was bringing in brass again, you know. We had all these fantastic Dutch session musicians, beautiful arrangements, string arrangements. And I'm a big fan of Paul all the way through. Some of the stuff he's done just didn't really rock my boat. But then every now and then, well, most of the time, he, he really hits the nail on the head. And he suddenly coming out with this album, Studio 150, was just like a covers thing. But that was like a regrouping for Paul as well, doing a covers album. That was a kind of like, emotionally, that was a turnaround. This is like, you know, I'm going to take the pressure off myself. I'm just going to love the music, do versions of tunes, you know, that I loved. And uh, Black is the Colour yeah. uh, track it is, for me, is uh, one of Paul's strongest suits is the folk sound the Paul generates as a folk musician because i've always loved folk music my mum used to sing scottish lullabies to us when we were kids and things and i've always had that folky kind of like thing that i've always found really important and also the fact that folk music is quite often a social commentary of the time so ancient folk tunes you can listen to them you listen to the lyrics you get a little flavor of what life might have been like at that time and that was very much for me like what the jam was because jam the jam was just social commentary really really poignant and then um so that you know i've always loved that folk element in paul's music and then after studio 150 it was as is now and i got involved and i was touring with paul again um we had benjamin Her and with a horn section as well dutch horn section benjamin herman amazing alto player uh jan van dukeren on trumpet and Luke Borderstein on trombone, and I was a tenor player. There were four of us, and we did like forest tours and stuff. And we prom promoted As Is Now, did a little bit of horn stuff on As Is Now. And then that was a another little moment in my life when I was back with Paul working with him. So he's always been a constant in my life. And it's amazing that uh, it ebbs and flows, and I'm seeing working with Paul again or not, and then stuff, and there's always other stuff going on. But he's always been, been there, you know, and I've always been 
aware of what he's doing. There's a wonderful DVD of Studio 150 Live, which was filmed at the Riverside Studios, which was um, home of TFI, oh, yeah. home of TFI Friday, Fact Fans. And the band is, uh, you know, Whitey, obviously, Damon Minchella, Ken Pappenfuss, who I had never come across before, but was a guitarist for a band called Relish. Um, yes. Yeah. Seamus Began was on key, so Iggy Pop and Morris. Seamus, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Madness and all that. And it's great backing, backing singers of Jocelyn Brown, Carly Nannis and Louise Marshall. Yes. You're back on sax and flute. And I love Studio 150 as an album. I think, you know, that yeah. the, um, if I can only be sure as an opening, I use that yeah. when it, whenever I've got to do a presentation to anybody, right? If there's like right. hundreds of people, either, either in person or I'm having to like present something to like hundreds of people over Zoom or whatever to like, you know, from a worky point of view, that's the song yeah. I put on beforehand to get me in the moon. Cause that's, oh my Brilliant. God, it's such a bloody great tune. But so this was his covers album where there's like, he's doing live Hercules and wishing on a star. But on the DVD, you also get you guys playing hung up. Tales yeah. from the Riverbank, Amongst Butterflies, Ever-Changing Moods and Broken Stones. It's a lovely little gig, that. Um, yeah. and, then, and then Craddock's back for the tour and you're travelling around Europe and Brussels and you know Germany, yes. Ireland, the UK and that. That's right. I've completely forgotten about how much Studio 150 was a part of that live stuff. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, Steve Craddock, Damien Minchella, Steve White, you know, Seamus Behan, lovely guy, great player. And then the, me and the three Dutch guys... In the horn section, who else was there? Yeah, it was quite a big band, really. And uh, everyone, pretty much everyone on that list, liked to drink. Yeah, <laughs> uh, alcohol has always been a big part. We used to joke. Me and me and the Dutch guys were like, you would just have this conference like a week before rehearsal started, and going, "Well, we better get in training." You know what I mean? And <laughs> training meant going to the pub every night. Get your tolerance so you levels get, up. <laughs> you get your tolerance levels up because, you know, it was like, I've got so many stories about the chaos and the mayhem and the, the things. Some are just not fit for public consumption at all, really, I have to say. But I've got some hilarious stories about alcohol-related stuff, especially in the early days. I mean, I could go on and on about it, but, you know, I mean, I've got... I feel for Kenny Wheeler and John Weller having to look yeah. after you lot. I mean, man alive. Yeah, I saw Kenny the other day down at Black Barn. He, he'd pop by and uh, we had such a lovely catch up. And uh, Kenny's not everyone's cup of tea for various reasons. He, he was quite authoritarian as a tour manager. But I think that came as the fact that he was having to manage young people who just were totally irresponsible. So he used to really sort of rule with a rod of iron. And it was like, you know, um, I, I've always felt for Kenny and his, uh, the task he had in hand. But Kenny liked to drink as well. So I don't know what he's complaining about. Really. <laughs> anyway, there was one story I might just let you know about. So I think it was just before Paul Weller album came out. So we were on we were on tour. Helen Turner was playing keyboards. Kamel, Zeke Manika, Steve White myself and, and Paul and we'd just done a tour of Japan and we were getting a um a flight directly from Tokyo to LA and it's the first time that I'd ever been to the States. We were on a roll. The band was sounding great. We had a, such a lovely uh, vibe together. So we'd been to the bar before the flight as was nor the norm, you know, and Paul had a really wicked look in his eye. I mean, I don't know, I've never seen him quite like that, but you know, he was up to some mischief. That was that was for sure. You know, we get on the plane and I'm just totally buzzing. You know, I'm like, I'm going to America. And not only that, I'm working with Weller and we're going to do loads of wicked gigs out there. And it's just going to be brilliant. And um, Paul is, we're all really, not, you know, nine sheets of the wind, 10 sheets of the wind even. And uh, all sat down. The plane's running down the runway. And just as it takes off, Paul decides is a good time to get up and go to the toilet. And he gets up and he gets thrown. He, he gets to the toilet 
a lot quicker than he first imagined. And he's in the crumbled heap at the bottom of the, the, the at the back of the plane. And, you know, we, we, his economy, we're all flying economy with just hundreds of people in there. And John's got his head in his hand. John Welles, dad's got his head in his hands. And Kenny's just sweating away going, what do we do about this? And Paul's locked himself in, in the toilet. And then he comes out and he, it's all a bit leery and stuff. And um, he sits down again and flying along. And we're trying to calm things down a little bit. And it's, it's just hilarious. And it's like, a lot of people on the plane were kind of like a bit pissed off, obviously, but a lot were finding it quite funny as well. So it wasn't too bad, and, uh, you know, and I'm thinking, oh God, let's just, let's just like behave a bit, shall we, you know, and uh, this very camp captain walks down the aisle and Paul's in his seat sort of giggling away. The camp commandant says to Paul, Mr. Weller, if you don't sit down just for a little while and behave yourself. I'm going to have to manacle you t- to the seat in front of you. And that's just like the uproar after that was just like, you are. <laughs> anyway, things did calm down after that. And we got out of the plane and I was thinking, this is it. We're all going to be thrown in a cell or something like that. And, uh, and we basically did the walk of shame through customs, keeping no, no eye contact with any <laughs> officials, keeping your head down. But we made it through and we got to the States and that was a big relief for me. And the only reason I'm <laughs> telling that story is because it really meant quite a lot to me because I was thinking they're never going to let us in this place. <laughs> yeah, the tour's <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, the tour's well, off. Well, well has blown it. There was a moment last summer which was really special for us. So, And I imagine for you too, because you're back in the band, Midsummer yeah. Music Concert, August 2020. Uh, we're yeah. all crammed around our laptops for this, this as live gig celebrating the album that was on Sunset, which was an amazing fabulous piece of work there you all are with this live performance for us my god there he is jacko picks back in the band how did that yeah. come about how did we get to that point for us fans that was a magical moment i have to say oh thank you well first of all it was just amazing to be back and uh like back in the fold you know yeah the thing was so what happened was i heard true meanings I was like absolutely blown away because I, I, I've always loved, like I was saying, the folk element of what Paul's done. And I was like, God, I think, you know, this sounds, for me, that was just an amazing sort of like collection of things, uh, especially aspects, I think mm. is an amazing thing. And gravity, you know, are the two, my favorite tracks off that album and, uh, for loads of different reasons. And then I heard, um, on sunset and I was like, this just Paul is just in a place that is so calm and so creative. And I was just like, and my juices were, I was just like being a mate of his, you know, old friend. I just thought, ah, oh, it's so good to hear someone move into this amazing space that he's created for himself out of all the difficulties he's had in the past that are kind of, I was aware of and then the, the highs and the lows and he's still doing it. So on sunset for me was just a lovely, lovely album. So relaxed. And he, there was this track called village and uh, on it. Which I just, it just really moved me. And that encapsulated what I was feeling, which he put into lyrics quite obviously, you know, I'm happy here in my neighborhood is the lyric in village. And I just completely and utterly just was melting, you know, and I was just as a mate, you know, I was just like, Oh, it's so great that you're feeling this now. Do you know what I mean? So I hadn't, I rang the old mobile ad for Paul just to congratulate him on the album, which didn't work because obviously hadn't spoken to him in ages and ages. So I got hold of Steve White and I said, look, I just want to tell Paul. 
difficult what I think about the album and um, so Steve texted Paul and said oh Jacko wants to get in touch and then Steve texted me back and said just give him a call now here's his number so I rang him five minutes later and I was talking to Paul again and then you know and it was so lovely to catch up and I just let him know what I thought you know and uh, it was a really natural kind of thing and that's all I wanted to do and uh, he said to me this is just amazing Jacko because yesterday I was thinking of you I've got this track called Shooby Doo which is later called Testify. And there's a couple of tracks on uh, this this new thing I'm doing called Fat Pop that I'd love you to do. And now and I've got this little studio at home now, which I built. And so I was like, well prepared to do the virtual recording kind of thing. I did a bit of flute on what became Testify and uh, also Still Glides the Stream I did some flute on. Sent it to Paul, you know, sort of waiting for the call has he got it? Has he heard it? <laughs> Does he like it? Am I going to, is it going to be any good? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. my missus, who's one of my biggest critics, said, I think, I, I think you'll be fine, Jack. Don't worry. Sounds all right to me. So and then Paul just went, oh, it sounds brilliant, mate. You know? And then I went to the church and he invited me to go to the church in Crouch End a week later to, to see the recording of the strings for, they had a big string section there with Stan Kybert producing it. And I met up with Paul then for the, uh, that was the first time I've seen him in ages and it was lovely. And, and he said to me on that day, Oh, look, we're going to do this live, these live tracks out of true meanings and on sunset. And bits of fat pop as well. Um, do you want to come and do it? And I was like, yeah, yes, yes, I'd love to. So he, he was rehearsing with the band for a week. Well, oh, they had a week session down at Black Barn and we recorded it on the Friday. The band had been rehearsing from the Monday. I came down on the Thursday and in typical Paul sort of like producing fashion, he throws me in the deep end. So I had a day to sort of get it together. Well, he did tell me what tracks they were. So I did a bit of homework, but it was, it was like a, one of those lovely spontaneous kind of moments where it just all fitted into place and everything that happened was just I mean I, I I'm really proud of that recording I really feel as though musically and stylistically and everything it just really came together it's part of the deluxe edition of Fat Pop there's a CD yeah. or the vinyl of that performance and but yeah I mean to be able to produce you know on sunset 2020 2021 Fat Pop yeah it's just amazing isn't it it's quite incredible where, where, where he's at, you know, he's still hitting the nail on the head. He's got the hammer firmly grasped in his right hand and what seems like an endless supply of nails. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, he's, he's not stopping the lad, is It's he? like an electric nail gun, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So, and the, the yeah. band are great, aren't they? The band are great. He's got, you know, Steve oh, Grimm, Andy Crofts, Ben Godelia, Tom Hill, that lineup that you were playing with, they're just fabulous, aren't they? Yeah, it's amazing. So Steve Craddock is covering all the bases, the normal. He's really got his shit together. I mean, it's great to be working with him again. And we've, we've really hit it off, me and Steve. We, I've done a, I've helped him out on a couple of projects and, uh, and then, and so he's kind of like, there's me, Paul and Steve who are kind of like the old guard, if you like. And then you've got these young'uns. Like all out, really out of Disband the Moons that Andy Croft runs, and then and then Steve Pilgrim as well. So Steve plays drums and beautiful acoustic guitar and sings like an angel. Andy Croft used to play keyboards for for Weller. He's a multi instrumentalist. Tom Van Heel plays keyboards now, sings great plays acoustic guitar guitars and his percussion occasionally. Ben Gordelier is like just the 
one of the coolest guys I've ever met. He's so relaxed and laid back and it comes out in his drumming. You know, he always plays the song really uh, subtle, lovely little feels. Everyone swaps around, you know, especially, you know, even having a little jam. It's just like all the demo time as we have where we just muck about and do just invent stuff and uh, working with these guys. And it's such a lovely thing. And we're, and I'm on the tour now. I'm just, I was about to know, ask because we're about to go live while it's back on the road from November. You're part of the lineup. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Oh, yeah. Oh, Initially, the, the initial tour, the initial first part, you know, I'm thankful for anything I'm given. So uh, I'm not going to sort of count my chickens, but, you know, there's loads of stuff going on next year that I know about that I'd love to be involved with. But let's see how it goes with this uh, this tour in the autumn. And uh, But I just can't believe that. I'm, and it's, they're great brunch of musicians. I mean, they... The backing vocal thing was the thing that I loved about the Midsummer music thing, because this male kind of a falsetto backing vocal thing, three-part harmony with Paul, it adds a real soulful Mm. kind of like thing to it. And uh, just as a top-line musician, you know, like a melody kind of vibe thing, for me, fitting in my flute and my saxophone, I don't have to sweat it. I can just sort of rest on these beautiful sort of colours that are coming out of the band and it's just going to be, I just can't wait. It's just going to be amazing. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Um, is there anything you can tell us in terms of how they're coming up with a set list? Because um, I think Andy Crofts was quoted as saying that at the minute they had a, a list of about 69 songs when Paul, Paul had gone through it. But I mean, how do you come up with a with a list for that tour? Well, I don't know. I think Paul mentioned 60 tunes and then Ben Godelia said, well, so how long have we got rehearsals? That, well, that's about five tunes a day. Do you think we can do it? And we'd like, yeah, of course we can do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, I mean, which equates to about a four hour set. So, but I think what's going to happen is, is that, um, we will attempt to climb Everest in that sense and we'll see what happens. But I think what, what's going to be nice is, is that we will be able to inter- interchange lots of different tunes at different nights and depending on how Paul feels about what he feels is strong and as the as the tour progresses some things will go down like a storm and also things develop yeah. during a tour as well so the fact that you can have i mean the back catalog and and even just is in in the last you know recent catalog is enormous anyway so you know these recent tunes have, there's so much going for them i mean even if you think about true meanings wasn't really toured properly and the, 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 yeah. the royal festival hall and the forest gigs did a little bit yeah. but there's kind of three albums there that we've not had live and i can't and i, I say i can't wait i've not got a ticket because my ticket was for brixton which i think was originally the first night of the tour back in the day before it was all postponed and stuff is now the right. final final night of the tour next year yeah <laughs> so, yeah in uh, april or something. yeah yeah so i'm like oh no 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 this is not going to be a thing. I bet you guys can't wait to get out on the road because that's going to be very special. We're just gagging for it, mate. It's just like, I mean, Paul especially, he's just, we're just like jumping, leaping up and down. It's getting closer. I mean, I, I have no idea what's going to happen on the first night. I think the first night's Oxford or something like that. I think you're in Ireland now, aren't you, the weekend before? Oh, well, we, yeah. we're doing Dublin, yeah. 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 It's going to be electric. It's just going to, we're just going to, it's going to, whatever happens, it's just, it's going to be monumental. I mean, the, God knows what the audience is thinking, but I, I'm just totally and utterly buzzing about it. It's just yeah. brilliant. Well, look, it's so lovely to see you back with the Weller Band. Thank you for all the music over the years. For me, it's meant so much as well. Um, and as I say, when I discovered Weller and my first live gigs with Weller, you were in the band. So to be in the band when he comes back to us again is, is such a yeah. cool thing. So I love that. You've been listening to the podcast all the way through. And there are bits and stories that have added to your memory from people like what well, people like Zeke Manika, I'm guessing, and Paul Francis and stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, Paul Francis was part of the 
of what I would call the youth club of the Paul Weller movement back in the day. We'd all be found playing pool somewhere, and it was just like you know. I remember Paul very fondly. Then hearing Zeke Manuka's voice. I haven't seen me and Zeke after we weren't working with Paul so much. Me and Zeke used to hang out in Old Street and uh, with a whole crew of people down there, and we used to party every weekend. It was it was just great to us. I've got to get in touch with him again. And then hearing Nicky Weller, I love the the podcast with Nicky Weller with Anne, her mum, you know, interjecting and then talking about the early jam days, which is just extraordinary. And and uh, Matt Dayton, who I've got to see quite a lot of lately um, through the Monks Road social thing that we do, talking about stuff and, and his experiences with Paul. I mean, it's just, it's been brilliant. And another interesting one was um, Rick Buckler talking about the jam, which was a real insight into how the jam were. Well, whereas he was talking about Paul playing bass and singing where it didn't really work out. And then Bruce Foxton, who was a rhythm guitar player transferring to bass. And it just so made sense to me when he was talking about Bruce Foxton playing bass like a rhythm guitarist, this kind of like a strumming-y kind of, and this was the jam sound. And that was another amazing insight into sort of like stuff that I hadn't really thought about and just made me connect in a massive way. But yeah, no, I've really enjoyed the the podcast as a whole and uh, quite nervous about coming to talk today because it's like, <laughs> you, know, you know, but I thought I'd give it a whirl anyway, Dan. Oh, bless and, you, man. Uh, well, just well, to well, add my two pennies worth, yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's been lovely to dig into the stories. Spread the word of Black Barn. Tell them what a nice experience it is and that they're all safe here. It's a safe environment. Yeah. Two final questions before you go. If you listen to the podcast, you'll know what they are, but you're allowed yeah. one, one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Style Council or Solo. Which one are you going to go with? Well, I think it's a really mean question anyway. <laughs> it is um, mean. Yeah, very mean. And uh, yeah, so, but I do, I have thought about this and uh, it excludes so many other things, obviously, because it's for, uh, very nature. But the thing that I uh, really was really moved me was when I first start, started working with the Style Council, my first experience of the Style Council, when I said before, I wasn't a massive Style Council fan initially, but when I heard Changing of the Guard and we played that, on that very last tour and at that very last gig. That for me was just the most amazing. I just thought, well, I've, I've always thought it was an amazing tune, Changing of the Guard, for so many reasons. Emotionally, Paul and Dee and Mick and Steve White all doing their thing in this. Uh, and for me, that encapsulated so much of what Paul was about and the rest of the band. If I was going to say one tune, that would be that would be it. Changing of the guard, yeah. It's a yeah. great choice. It's a great choice. So, final question. Obviously, the purpose of this podcast is to get that meeting with Paul at Black Barn. We're going to sit there for hours talking about life, the universe, and everything. Uh, if it yeah. happens, what should I talk to him about? Is there a question you reckon I should ask? There's a kind of I, I don't know. I think Paul and I touched on a couple of times. It's just the sort of subject of how can I put it. The benefit of an older age and the creative process. So the idea that actually there are some benefits of getting on a bit and it is the fact that you can actually, you, you kind of know what you want a little bit more and you're more, and the, your decision making is perhaps a little bit better. And I think that's what Paul and I are sort of. Uh, had chatted about a little bit in the sense, isn't it great? So you could expand on that and ask him, is this the real thing? It is, does this actually exist? I love this that. idea that you actually improve with age. And with that comes confidence as well. And you really feel that through the last few albums, particularly it's like, it's like, he's just, he's, he's hitting sixes every time and almost yeah. showing off in a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why not? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 
Jacko, yeah. this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for your time, man. I've loved every second of this. This has been really fun. Thank you. Fantastic, Dan. Lovely to meet you. Yeah. You too, man. And um, yeah, see, see you in November on tour, hopefully. Can't wait. I'll buy you a drink. All the best, mate. Well, that was just brilliant. My thanks once again to the amazing Jacko Peak. And whilst I remember, make sure you check out the latest Sunday Sessions Paul Weller video. It's him doing a version of the song That Pleasure from the album Fat Pop. It's an incredible version of the song. And there are some sensational sounds coming from Jacko on that performance as well. Now, next up on the podcast, fresh from a Mercury Music Prize nomination and live performance, I'm joined by the incredible singer-songwriter, composer, arranger, instrumentalist, radio producer, Presenter, producer, there's no end to her amazing talents. The fabulous Hannah Peel joins me on the next episode of the podcast. Not only is her own work an inspiring blend of projects that will blow your musical mind, but she also added her skills to the recent True Meanings on Sunset and Fat Pop Paul Weller albums. And that incredible gig, who can forget it? The one at Royal Festival Hall in 2018 that turned into the Other Aspects album. It's an absolute cracker, so make sure you tune in, make sure you subscribe, you follow wherever you get your podcast. Do leave a review, it really does help to find new listeners. And please, please, please share this episode of the podcast on your social media channels. Yes, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, heck, wherever the hell you like. You can also buy me a coffee and find information about my guests in the show notes for this podcast. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, it's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.